How to live in the present with no fear and look back with no regrets while looking forward to a future with no sorrow. That's next on Grow in Grace. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place got to dwell with man. Sit be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. I said let this world know me by your love. It's not just a cliche to say we want to make the most of life. It's a deep and God-given desire in all of us. Yet too often, what gets in the way is our present fears, our past failures, and future worries. Welcome to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We're making our way through 2 Timothy and nearing the end of this letter written by the Apostle Paul from prison. We began last time in chapter 4 hearing Paul's testimony that he is living in the present with no fear looking back with no regrets, and looking forward to a future where there's no sorrow. But that doesn't mean it's not a battle to do so. God will give him, and us, what we need to fight the good fight. Pastor Ed begins today's teaching in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, on that very point. The word fought is the Greek word agonizer where we get our English word, agonize, oh. <laughs> it speaks of struggling in a contest. He's probably referring to the Olympic Games. At that time, the most popular event was wrestling because it had a high cost involved with it. Two men grappling against each other, agonizing to present themselves as the winner and to prevent the other contestant from gouging out their eyes. That's when the whole fight was over. Nice, huh? So it was a brutal pagan time, but Paul is saying, I have agonized. I have stood and fought the best effort. Does that fit Christianity? Oh, yes, very much. In fact, Paul wrote about it to the Ephesians, you remember, the last chapter. If you were with us when we went through the book of Ephesians, Paul describes a Roman soldier, his armor as being very much like what God has given you and given me. And he starts and he says, and I put on, as you should put on, the helmet of salvation. Now, imagine what Paul looked like at this point in his life. He's got white hair if he's got hair at all. And uh, he's not a really big man, but he's standing there in this armor. That's the picture I get. And you should Go with me just a moment. But think about that helmet of salvation that was given to him. It's got dents in it. <laughs> it's all beat up. It looks like it has gone through a lot, and it has. And so there's hatchet chops in the side, a little bent over. He might not sit quite straight on his head anymore. But he's standing there with this helmet on. And then he describes this breastplate. Think of a Roman gladiator with this breastplate of righteousness, he says. Where do you get righteousness? You get it from Jesus. Paul didn't have any, I don't have any, you don't have any of your own. Romans 5, 17, Paul says it is a gift of righteousness. Oh, wait a minute, you got grace as a gift? Yeah. You got righteousness as a gift? Yeah. 
And in fact, it's all a gift. <laughs> they were even here. So he's got this breastplate, this gift from God. And how's it look? Same thing, all beat up. Got holes in it. It's bent. It's probably a little rusty. It's bent all over three continents. You go down, he's got a belt on. Belt of truth, he said. And it's probably leather, and think of it as the cinch on a saddle around a horse, you know, sweat-stained, and it, it's a little ragged around the edges. Well, that's what he's been doing. He's been fighting with the belt of truth on for the truth with others. On his feet, shot in the gospel of peace, that he's stood in these, think Roman-style shoes with, with metal tabs on the bottom, cleats we would call them. And uh, he stood on three continents bringing the gospel to Europe that eventually came here and we're blessed by it and send it out. So Paul has got this armor on, but he's got two more pieces. He's got a shield. It's probably wood with a, a thin metal covering on it. It might just be plain wood. How's it look? Eh, it's got burn holes in it. What? the fiery darts of the evil one. They've broken off arrows in there that have come at him. It's probably got some chop marks on the top of it, and the bottom's probably all ragged from being beat on. This was a set of armor that wasn't for display. It was used in a battle. But there's one piece that has been given him that looks like it's brand new. It's shiny. It looks like polished stainless steel. What is it? Sword. The sword, the sword of the Word of God. He uses it every day. He's got it out, gets polished, he gets used. He spends time in God's Word every morning. And that's the fight. He's fought well. He's put his best effort forward. And he's confident about that. He has fought, past tense. He is a finisher. He refuses to be a failure. It's human to fail, but you don't have to be a failure. You just say, Lord, forgive me. Dust yourself off, get up, and do it again. Paul didn't have a perfect fight. He got beat up, but he is a finisher. He finished right. So Paul is moving from the picture of a wrestler to another Olympic sport. The second most popular one was the marathon in that day. It has a lot of Greek history and Greco-Roman history because in 490, without belaboring this too much, there was a great battle at a little city called, a port city called Marathon. There was a plain outside of it, and it was there that Darius I, the Persian king, the Darius of the Old Testament, came to fight against the Greeks, the Ionians, the Athenians in the north. And they met at this little valley, this little flat plain, and it was named Marathon. It was there, the Greeks were outnumbered, two to one, some say three to one, and the battle went forward, and the Persians had their back to the sea, and the Greeks valiantly fought the Persians back to the sea, and they departed and went back to Persia. And as the story goes, a soldier ran from the village, the little city of Marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. <laughs> And that's where we get the distance in the marathon today. 
to go to Athens to tell them what happened. And he so gave himself, he so spent his energy that he fell down, said that the Athenians had won and died on the spot. Just like Hollywood, right? Dramatic ending. Okay. We don't even know if the story's true, but several different historians wrote about it. And we don't know the guy's name because there's five different historians and, of course, five different names for him. But it's still a great story, right? But that's what Paul is referring to here. Life is not a sprint. <laughs> that's the understatement of the morning. <laughs> Life is a marathon. It just keeps going and going for some. And I, like everyone else, looks at some saint who's just an amazing person, still struggling into their 70s and 80s and 90s and even into their 100s. I had an uncle, godly man, lived to be 103. Lord, please don't make me live that long. When you asked him, how does it feel to be 103? He says, it hurts. <laughs> I'm beginning to understand that. I'm sure I don't fully understand it. And I don't want to find out. I want to be like Paul. Just take me home. I fought. I want to be a finisher, and I want to finish this race. Now, what about the race? Well, you've probably noticed it's individual in nature. Your race is different than everybody else's, different than the person sitting next to you and across the room and me, that it's a staggered start. If you've done any distance running, 440 and greater, they stagger the start. That's because the distance on the inside lane, of course, is less than on the outside lane if they just started straight across. So the inside lane is back, and second lane a little closer, all the way up to the last lane. You're in a lane. God designed the course for you, different than mine. It's not a lane that you can move from or I can move from. I'm supposed to stay between the lines. Sometimes if I look over, I think, that's not fair. They got like the easy lane. <laughs> No, that's just because I don't know the details of their life. And then other times I look over and go, thank you, Jesus, I don't have that lane. But he says, just wait. <laughs> Yours is coming, Bubba. So difficulty awaits us all. It's an individual lane designed for you. You have gifts for that lane that no one else has, a collection of friends and family and history that no one else has so that you can finish your race well. And in fact, you're doing it with only one spectator. What? There's really only one person to be looking at. It's just like worship. When we worship, we don't worship for the person sitting next to us, the person across the room, or the people up here aren't worshiping so much for you. There's an audience of one, and his name is Jesus. And he's waiting for you and I to look for him. Because when we see him, when we look him in the eyes, then we're nourished, we're strengthened, we're built up. That's what he's asking you to do right now here in this place. Look past this guy trying to explain these concepts and look to him, the author and the finisher of our faith. Pastor Ed Ray on where to fix our gaze. We continue now on Grow in Grace with more insight on running our race and how to keep going. Again, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We left off at verse 8. So we're in this race. We've got our own lane. It's an individual lane. And we are not to look at other people. We are to stay in our lane. And short or long, we all can finish well. Why? 
because God promises to get us there. We keep looking at him, he will get us there. Paul wrote about it in Jude. He said, God is able, not you are able, God is able to keep us from falling. You know, you're running race, you fall down, get your knees all messed up, your toes, your elbows, your forehead. God is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless, blameless, literally, before our Heavenly Father. How can we be blameless? How can we be faultless? We confess our sins to Him, and He cleanses us from all sin, and we are no longer in blame. He took it all on the cross for us. You know that, but I'm just reminding you. And then thirdly, He is faithful, kept the faith. Paul said, I kept the faith, the truth, the standards, God's Word. Paul is guarding it. The, the term suggests that he's guarding something of great value. And it is of great value. It's a treasure held in, by you, a, a clay vessel. We've talked about that before. Paul said that we are jars of clay, marred, mud pots, but we contain this great treasure, the gospel, the good news that's available to all people. It reminds me, if you're ever in Istanbul, you have to go look at the Caliph's Museum, and the crown jewels are there, and it's this kind of surrealistic room. It's got these two gigantic guards, and they switch out, but you have to be more than 6'4 to be on this guard of the Caliph's jewels. And you walk up, and they're standing on each side, just a little intimidating with automatic weapons and uh, all kinds of military gear on. But you look at this thing that looks like a fish tank, but the sides of it are like more than two foot thick. And you look inside, and it looks like broken glass at first, and then you get closer, and there's diamonds the size of my fist in there, maybe two or three hundred of them, plus all other different sizes. It's mounted up. It looks like a pile of broken glass billions of dollars of diamonds. The treasure that you hold, that you contain, is worth more than that box full of diamonds. But you're not supposed to guard it to hoard it. I'm not supposed to keep it. I'm supposed to give it away. It's God's gift to you to give to others so that they can spend eternity with Him. There it is. God wants us to present the truth faithfully over and over again, not changing it, not switching things around. If you uh, talk to someone who uh, has grown up in Europe during the Second World War, you'll know that when the Allies, Memorial Day made me think of this, so when the Allies came in and they were heading, trying to get through the forest there in, in France and then get on to Berlin, the retreating Nazi army took the road signs and moved them. They didn't steal them. They took them out of the ground here, took it down the road a mile, and put it on another corner, and they turned it the other way. So what happened? For two days, the Allies were doing this because <laughs> they changed the signs. You can't change the signs. You can't change the truth. You can't change God's Word. You're just supposed to faithfully believe it. Well, some parts are really hard. They are, but God gives the grace to go through it. God's Word is the signpost. Don't move it. Don't change it. And people will faithfully follow the Lord the same direction you are. Okay, that's the present and the past. Now, the last one, future. Finally, there is laid up for me, Paul speaking, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, capital D, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, 
Paul says, it is a crown and it is of righteousness. Righteousness, we talked about that. The righteousness of Christ is a gift. So Paul gets a crown and the word he uses is actually a garland. It was again an Olympic picture. They would make a weave, a garland of laurel. It's called a laurel wreath. But the more popular one was oak leaves, which you really don't hear about very often. But it was perishable. I mentioned that when we were in Corinth, we stood at the, the judge's seat, the Bema judgment seat. You can go and visit it, stand there and look at it. And that's what Paul was referring to, that it was at that judgment seat of Christ that these crowns of righteousness that is Jesus' righteousness anyway are given to us. And what are we going to do with them? book of Revelation says when we stand before and we're worshiping, we're going to take our crowns off and throw them down. They belong to him anyway. And that's your way of worshiping him. Life is this race that goes on. God's going to give you a crown on that day, the day that he returns, when he comes and his feet step down onto planet Earth, onto the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says it's going to split in two and a river's going to come out. It's going to go down and heal the Dead Sea and go out to the Mediterranean in two directions, and the earth will be healed by God's presence. And for a thousand years, you will rule and reign with him. I don't know exactly what that means, but he's saying he's going to use you. He's going to use me. Not only do I get impulses, but to all who look forward to his coming. Are you looking forward to Jesus coming? Yeah, that's not hard, Pastor. You've been reading the news? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Are you in a tough time right now? Is the battle raging around you? Is the race half finished and you feel like you're so far behind you'll never catch up? Barbara Johnson is a lady I was reading the other day who has a ministry to people who are struggling. And when you read her testimony, it's kind of like Paul's, you go, oh my goodness, her husband, an automobile accident years ago, and, and he's bedroom, can't move. She has three sons, and the first one uh, died of cancer, if I remember right. Then the second one was killed in an automobile accident. Now the third one is in a destructive lifestyle, uh, taking terrible drugs that's going to kill him if he doesn't stop. But she ministers to women who are going through things. And she says, in one form or another, when someone comes in and life is just overwhelming, she says she's a, a pro football fan, of all things. She uses football illustrations. And she says to people who are going through very crushing circumstances and feel like they're so far behind they can't catch up, she says, God never promised us to be ahead at halftime but he did promise that we would win the game. So you see, we're at halftime right now. All of us in this room, we're sitting here, we're thinking about God, hallelujah. Hopefully you're not thinking about like, you know, Five Guys Burger down the street or something. Can't this guy just stop? Get us out of here. <laughs> but we're pausing and we're considering eternal things. It doesn't happen very often. Nobody likes to talk about death. Nobody likes to think about it, but it's a reality that's staring at each of us. So, at halftime, like this, you are probably not ahead. <laughs> Few people are. And sometimes we feel like we just can't possibly catch up. But God promises that we will win. Hang on to him, and he'll get you there. Guarantee that he'll get you there.
So that's Paul's past, the future, and the present. And it's supposed to be our past, future, and present. How do you want to be remembered, saint? God is going to get you there. Just finish well, which means you don't get too sidetracked. You stay in your lane and you run. And I found what I think is like the ultimate Memorial Day illustration that speaks of God and of the great gifts he has given us. I'm going to read it to you. It's a testimony of a, a man who now lives in New York City, an old Dutchman. And he's talking about having grown up during the Second World War. And he wrote about God's intervention in his nation's life in Holland as well as in his own life personally. It was close to the end of World War II. I was a little boy, and our country had been ravaged. The conquerors, the Nazis, had been driven out, but we were left absolutely destitute. We had ration stamps, but they weren't any good, for we had no food at all. There was no food in the warehouses or stores or country districts or farms. Holland had been swept clean of foodstuffs. We were reduced to eating beets out of the fields normally given to animals. It was the worst kind of beet, dangerous to eat without long cooking, but even then, you had to accompany it with other food or a chemical reaction would go off and bloat you up and people had died from eating it. You know how beautiful Holland's tulips are? We dug the bulbs out of the ground and ate them. That was all we had. We were desperate. Then a notice came from our pastor. It went around to the whole community telling us that there would be a prayer meeting at the church. Since we were reduced to final circumstances, we would have a meeting and pray to God, asking him, we were his children, and asking him to feed us. It was the only hope we had. He was the only hope we had. The big church was packed. 2,000 people were present. No sermon. We prayed for an hour or two. The pastor prayed. The people prayed all aloud, all over the church. We just sat there, herded together, praying to God. I was only a little boy, but all of a sudden, I became aware that God was right there. And I was almost frightened. I could feel him in my heart. I knew that he was present, and I knew that he was going to take care of us poor, starving people. Then we sang one of those old Dutch hymns of faith, and we went out into the streets and back to our homes. There was a nine empty stomach that I fell asleep with. But early the next morning, American airplanes, a great armada flew over Rotterdam. And there began a great shower of food. It seemed like the sky was full of parachutes and great packages of food floating down to the streets of Rotterdam. It filled the avenues with fine food, and we ate our fill. As long as I live, I will believe that God heard those prayers, and out of his great heart of love, he fed his children by the hands of Americans. I have a great faith, and I know I could never get outside the care of God. Perhaps you are here without faith this morning. Maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor, that was just a coincidence. The Americans were already flying from England to drop all this food. It just was a coincidence. No, it was a God incident. It was something that he planned so that people who loved him might have a closer relationship 
with him, being drawn in. Indeed, there are two final destinations, as Pastor Ed Ray has alluded to. God would have you with him forever. You need only believe in his son, Jesus, his gift from heaven for you. And this is Grow in Grace. Thanks for listening to part of our study in 2 Timothy. Just go online to thepackinghouse.org for a replay. We archive our programs there for you so you can listen anytime you'd like. That's thepackinghouse.org or listen to us on Apple Podcasts. One more option is to call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Grow in Grace is made possible through the generosity of our listeners, and we're thankful for each and every gift that comes our way. If you've been blessed by the teaching you've received through this radio program and would like to support what we're doing in this new year, please give us a call at 844-77-GRACE. And as a way of saying thank you, we'll send you Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This book brings together what Lewis saw as the fundamental truths of Christianity. And in it, he sets out to defend the beliefs that believers through the ages hold in common. And I know you'll be encouraged by what he has to say. So again, you can ask for your copy of Mere Christianity when you give today. Give us a call, 844-77-GRACE. This program is brought to you by the Packinghouse Christian Fellowship and online at packinghouse.org. Zion, now filled with hands And in this place God will dwell with man Sick be healed and the crippled stand Singing hallelujah My kingdom built with the blood of my son Selfless sacrifice for everyone Faith, hope, love and harmony I said let this world know me by your